0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God created a world that He didn't want to make people love Him. Making people love someone is not a good idea. If I sat down in a counseling appointment with someone and the lady said to me, my husband makes me love him, I'd go, okay, we got a problem, right? Anybody that makes someone love you, are going to love me, is a monster. And So God created a world with choice and said to you, choose you this
1: day whom you will serve. We know we live in a fallen world, and with that reality comes the unpopular truth that we will suffer and have pain in this life. But Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God uses our suffering, both physical and spiritual, for a purpose. With more on why a good God allows suffering in our lives, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson with an encouraging message out of John chapter nine.
0: Father, thank you that we can take time now to study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us. We pray that we would have a good understanding of this passage and that we would consider suffering from a biblical perspective and that we would understand it. We also pray your Holy Spirit would work inside of each one of us that we would be renewed day by day. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Light shines brightest in darkness. And that is true in the life of a Christian. When we are going through difficult and hard times, light shines the brightest from us. People watch us when we are suffering to see if we really believe what we say we believe when we're not suffering. It's easy to follow God when things are going really well, but when something seems unfair and we submit to that, then we are saying something that is very powerful to the world that is around us. Today, I want to consider suffering through our text. We're going to see why there is suffering, see if There is a good and loving God, why he allows evil and suffering in the world. And we're going to see how we should respond to suffering ourselves. And that starts with an encounter Jesus had with a blind man. And we want to start reading from verse 1 of John chapter 9. It says, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born blind. This is the problem. This is the suffering of this man. And why is he blind? is the question that the disciples immediately come up with. Well, they have only two suggestions, and the disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They had a cause and effect belief about suffering, that if you suffer, it's got to be someone's fault. And the first one I have a problem with, the second one I don't have so much of a problem with it. He says, who sinned, this man or his parents? Did they believe in prenatal sin? Did they believe that this man could have sinned in the womb? Did they believe that he was alive before and somehow did something displeasing to God? I don't know what their theology was that allowed them to think that he could have sinned before he was born, but they believed that. This idea that if you've got something bad happening in your life, there's a thought out there that you must be at fault. This is as old as Job. When Job went through all of his suffering and his friends showed up, they were supposed to comfort him. I'm going to paraphrase what they said, but instead they said, come on, Job. We know that nothing this bad happens to anybody unless they've done something bad. So tell us, what did you do that was bad? And Job says, I did not. And they say, yes, you did. And he, I did not. Yes, you did. I did not. Yes, you did. And that goes on for a long time in the book of Job. And finally, Job says to them, miserable comforters are you all. Because someone who says to you when you're going through suffering what did you do to deserve this that's a miserable comforter we know it's possible that we could do something that brings suffering in our lives but a lot of suffering maybe even most suffering just happens to us the false teachings of the faith movement do the same thing they say God wants you healed and if you are not healed God wants you financially well off and you're not financially well off. God wants you always prospering. If you're not prospering, then you must have sin in your life or you don't have enough faith, which they would say was sin. But they point to you. They teach this unbiblical teaching that God never wants anything bad to happen to you. And then when something does bad happen to you, they say, it's not our fault, it's yours. You must have something wrong in your life. That's the first thing they bring up. And I have a problem with that. Did this man sin that he's born blind or, or was it his parents? The second one I don't have as much of a problem with because the parents could have done something. Could have been syphilis. A lot of babies are born blind because of syphilis. So there could have been syphilis that that got involved because of promiscuity, maybe. Sometimes suffering comes into our lives because of consequences. So at least that one I understand. It might not be very compassionate to look at someone and go, why are they suffering? But at least I understand their thought process. And uh, Jesus answered, Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. He says they, they didn't sin. This isn't their fault. But God has a purpose for his suffering. Now, this is really important that we understand that God has a purpose in suffering. That's why we're talking about suffering from this text, because God has a purpose in suffering. Consider it all Enjoy, my brethren, When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. Now, I don't know many people that rejoice over various trials, but God's using them in our lives. God can use all things, including suffering, to work together for the good. The Bible teaches that clearly, and Jesus makes that point. This is for the work of God that this is done for him. And then he kind of does some talk about light and darkness. Remember, you're talking to a man who's blind and people who can see So this is all an interaction over this blind man. he see, he said, I must work the work of him who sent me while it's day, it's daytime now, I'm gonna work while it's day, but the night is coming when no one can work. Darkness is on its way, it's too late then. You can't do work after the darkness is here. This speaks of the window of opportunity that is open for all people who are alive that will one day be closed. And then he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This means that you and I as Christians have the best chance to have a proper worldview. I want to be very careful when I say that because I'm not the kind of pastor, leader, Christian that wants you and I to be in lockstep in everything that we believe. I like the fact that there are differences among us. I like the fact that we believe things differently or we might see something in the world and think differently about it. Because if we don't, then we're acquiescing what God's given us to be able to seek truth, to see things happening in the world and to figure out what's happening there. I can tell you that in politics, I am not a partisan. I have a side that I favor, but I'm not a partisan. A partisan is somebody who says, I just believe whatever my party says. I will question everything my party says. I'm really an independent, but I will question everything with the party that I, that I vote on. Because I don't wanna just be the guy who doesn't think things through. I don't wanna believe it just because they say it because there's so much spin put on things that the truth is being denied by both sides. And I wanna know what the truth is. So when I say that you and I have the best opportunity to see the light, that means we wanna know what the truth is and so we search the scriptures to find that truth and we think independently, we make our own decisions about it. And hopefully we come to the same conclusion. And if we do, that's great. And if we come to a different conclusion, then that's great. We can interact with one another. It's, it's the unity in our differences that makes unity amazing. Anybody can, can have unity with someone they agree with 100%. But when you disagree with someone and have unity, that's powerful. The Bible says we are all one. The Bible says be all in one accord. It has nothing to do with a Honda. Be all in one accord, it says. I know, stupid joke. Stupid joke I've been using for 35 years, by the way. But it has nothing to do with, with that. It has to do with us being in one accord, even though there might be differences. But I love that Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If we want to know the truth, we've got our best chance. The world doesn't have it. Other religions don't have it. But we could go through Jesus to see what's going on in the world. When he had, <laughs> Let me just read this all the way through. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool Siloam, which is translated sent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, we read that. We're very familiar with it. We've read it before. We know it. I've heard teachings on it before. But it's weird. Okay. He doesn't tell the blind man, I'm going to heal you. There are a few blind people that go to our church. And when I see them, I come up and say hi. And I tell them, I'm going to give you a hug. Now, not during COVID times, right? But normally. Because I don't want them to be startled. It's like, why is this person hugging me? I don't even know who it is that's hugging me. So I come up, I say, hi, I tell them I'm going to give them a hug. Jesus could have come up and said, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm going to spit in the ground. I'm going to make clay. I'm going to rub it in your eyes. I'm going to heal you. You know, I just don't want you to be alarmed. But instead, according to the account, Jesus walks up to him and, and is, his, his, like any blind person, his other senses are heightened. He knows someone's approaching. And he hears, <sighs> right? He's got to be thinking, what's going on? He hears somebody spit on the ground and then he hears him down moving around on the ground as he's making clay with his spit. And I mean, I just want to be honest with you, that's gross. Now, it's Jesus's spit, I know, okay? But it's still gross. If I watched someone do that, I would be like, gross. So, Jesus... And he makes clay and then without telling him, he rubs it in his eyes and then says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash out, wash it out. Now, that's a command of God that he probably doesn't have any problem with. He's like, OK, sure, I'm going to the pool of Siloam. Some things God tells us to do are hard and some things are really easy. But here's the thing that's important about this. And we see it in every one of the miracles of Jesus. It's in the command that there is the power to be healed or to do what God tells you to do. The man with the withered hand couldn't stretch out his hand. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. As he started to do it, he was able to do it. When Jesus tells the lepers, go show yourself to the priest and they go, the Bible says, as they went, they were healed. It was in the going, I think the the King James Version says, that they were healed. It's in the doing. It's when we are obedient to him. And there are all kinds of things God tells us to do. And we should be excited by faith to say, I want to do what God wants me to do because God's going to move when I am obedient to his word. When I'm doing what he says. When I teach about love and people say, I can't love this person. Hey, why don't you give it a try? See if there's not power in the command. Or I can't forgive that person. Why don't you try, start forgiving them and see if there's not power in that command. And so he comes back seeing. Now, therefore, the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not the man who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. And he said, I am he. His life was so transformed by Jesus that people didn't recognize him. I've known Christians like that. A friend of mine, Gino Geraci from Calvary Chapel of, of South Denver, his brother was voted most likely to go to hell in high school. I can't remember what Gino was voted, but when he got saved in high school, his friends didn't recognize him. He was so radically different. He had changed so much. The people were like, I don't know if it's him or not. It's like him. And when that happens, when God changes us so much, we have an opportunity to give our testimony. And our testimony is very powerful. Listen to his testimony. He said, I'm him. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? How is it you're so different? Therefore, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes with it, told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. That seems like a very direct testimony, but it's powerful. The Bible says in Revelation, we overcome Satan with the blood of the lamb that we are forgiven by his blood and by the word of our testimony. We have a powerful testimony. I consider my testimony to be boring. I went to a church my whole life. Then I was challenged as to have whether I've given my life to Christ, and I did. But whenever I tell the story in detail, I get a, such a response from it, because a personal story is very powerful. He also sends him to the Pool of Siloam, and this is rooted in, in a real place. You can go to Israel today, and they have excavated part of the Pool of Siloam. I've been there many times. Last time, we were two times ago, we were there, we were, uh, we were there with Scott Richards, who's a another Calvary Chapel pastor here in town. And Dan Swanson who's another Calvary Chapel pastor here in town, Midtown. And we were standing outside of the gate of the Pool of Siloam and a rock hit right by Dan's head. And we looked over over, and there was a hill and all of these rocks were coming like missiles over the hill. The Palestinian, probably teenagers, had saw us coming, an American bus, and they picked up rocks and they threw them at us. We went through the gate. Scott Richards got hit in the head. He gets hit and kind of drops down in front of me. And one of the other people in the group got hit by it. And I'm just telling you that because it's a pool of Siloam and I have a story about it. It's the only reason I'm telling you that. There's really no spiritual application. And some of you guys are going, I'm not going to go. But consider this. I have a story about the pool of Siloam. I got a story that I was stoned at the pool of Siloam. And so this man gives his testimony. Now, Jesus said something very clear. And that was that God had a purpose for this man's suffering. So let's take time now to consider the reasons why there is suffering in the world. Number one, God created a world where pain helps us interact with our world. Let me say that again. God created a world where pain helps us interact with the world around us. If I grab a pan off the stove and it's hot, I feel the the heat immediately and I, I let go. My nerves, the pain that I had, the little bit of pain helped me that I did not hurt myself. If I'm barefoot and I step on a rock and it's sharp, it is amazing how fast I can reverse course. I'm walking, putting weight on. And as soon as I feel that little sharpness, I'm able to take that weight off that foot so I'm not injured by that rock. That's the way it works. God has given us pain. And I'm assuming that he gave Adam and Eve nerves as well. And that if everything worked right, their nerves would keep them from being injured. That's not just humans, that's animals as well, right? We, we all have this nervous system and, and God uses pain, suffering, in order to keep us safe. There's a disease called CIPA. I, I was gonna read all the words, but I couldn't pronounce it. So I just boiled it down to CIPA, which is how doctors refer to it, by the way, in which you can feel no pain the nerves of that person that has this condition never develop. At first thought you might go, that's great. Not feeling any pain, how awesome would that be? To never feel any pain. Some of us that might have back issues, some of us that might have chronic pain issues, we would go, yeah, right now it'd be great to not have any pain. But these people lose their fingers and they lose their toes, they lose their hands and they lose their feet. They, they sometimes get infections that are severe and cause septus that ends up killing them because they don't know when they're injuring themselves. They don't know until later. They injure themselves and don't know it. Sometimes that happens to us, right? All of a sudden you find a cut on your finger, like, where did that come from? I don't remember when that happened. But imagine if you could be severely hurt. So God created a world where pain is necessary to be able to interact with the world around us. That's what God did. We observe that, and we can say that there is suffering in the world to keep us safe because pain is used that way. Now, the second reason that there's pain in the world is because God gave man free will. And write that down. It might not make sense right away, but it will. Because God gave man free will. So God created a world, that he didn't want to make people love him. Making people love someone is not a good idea. If I sat down on a counseling appointment with someone and the lady said to me, my husband makes me love him, I'd go, okay, we got a problem, right? Anybody that makes someone love, you're gonna love me, is a monster. And so God created a world with choice and said to you, choose you this day whom you will serve. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You get to choose if you're gonna love him or not. And after you choose to not love him, then you've got a choice. See, it's, it's, some people say when you choose not to love God, then you're automatically evil. And, and we, could, we could argue the theological points there. But when you choose not to follow God, you can do good and evil. People that don't follow God can still do good things. I mean, I have people argue against that, but it's just, you know, some arguments, you, know, you don't have to worry about them. Someone who doesn't know God, and we all know him, or have done good things. Or they can do evil things. And a lot of people choose evil. And some people, well, and and, you know, in choosing evil, God's given us this inward system as well called the conscience. We feel bad when we do something evil. And so most of us go, I don't want to do that anymore. But some people sear that conscience. Some people don't have that conscience. Like the person who doesn't have nerves, there are people that are born without a conscience. And all they care about is themselves, and they can do as much evil as they want. And so there's Hitler, so there's Stalin, so there's Ted Bundy. So there's these people in the world that cause suffering. So suffering is magnified because of the problem of evil. Evil is in the world because God gave man a choice. Some men choose evil, and that is now magnified suffering. And you and I may have gone through suffering because of someone. You and I have gone through suffering because of someone else. We all know what that is like. And so suffering is here because God created a world in which we interact with. And by the way, our souls are the same way. If we feel bad, our conscience, but even other things, if we just start feeling bad, it's telling us something is wrong. Now, I understand there can be chronic depression and there could be a lack of a balance of the chemicals that in your your mind that make you feel good. I understand all that. But for healthy people, and most of us are healthy, when we feel bad, it's telling us something. It's saying there's something in your life that isn't right. That's the way God created the world. And it's magnified because there's evil in the world because God gave men choice because God's not a monster and gives people a choice whether or not they can love him. That's the world God created. Atheists don't like that world, but that's the world God created. The third reason suffering is in the world is because God has a purpose for it. God uses suffering God's ways are not our ways. His ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. If I were God, I'd probably try to find a way to bring deep character into people's life without suffering. But God uses suffering. C.S. Lewis said, and there's no good message on suffering that doesn't have this quote in it, by the way. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's interesting that when you look at a map of where the most suffering is in the world, that that is the area that is more open to Christianity. When you consider where people are, have it the easiest and there's the least amount of suffering, there is more secularism and there is more people that deny the existence of God. Suffering and pain causes us to seek God If there's a lack of it in our lives, then we have a tendency just to go our own way and to not really come to him. So God uses difficulty, suffering, and hardships to discipline his children. God uses it to draw people to him. God uses it to work in people's lives. Examples in the Bible of this. There's many scriptures that tell us that, by the way. But examples in the Bible, one is Joseph way back in the book of Genesis. Joseph had several seasons in his life. The first one was as a loved son. Jacob loved one woman and ended up with four wives. If you want to read the very tragic story about how Jacob got four wives, it's back in Genesis. Doesn't make that sound very appealing. But you remember that he met Rachel at a well. They were both young and he kissed her and he cried. And I'm still not sure, is that romantic or not, when you kiss a woman and cry? And then he wanted to marry her. And then he gets duped and marries her older sister instead. And then... Then he marries Rachel, and then Rachel's barren. So she gives her handmaiden to Jacob, and she becomes a wife. And then her sister Leah gives her handmaiden because there's this competition. And he ends up with 10 sons before Rachel ever has a son. And finally, when Rachel has a boy, it's Joseph. And now he loves him more than all of his other sons. And that's always a problem. He loves him more, and he treats him in a certain way. And his brothers, out of jealousy, kidnap him, throw him in a pit, plan to kill him. And then decide to make a profit on him and sell him into slavery. So he went from loved son to slavery. It got worse. He was the slave of Potiphar, who was the commander of the army of Israel. He had a wife, and when she saw Joseph, Joseph, by the way, was very very capable, and he rose in ranks very quickly in the family as a servant for Potiphar. And he went into the house to do his business one day, and Mrs. Potiphar was like, come over here. And he's like, no. And then one day when he went in and they was there alone with her, she grabbed him by his robe and said, sleep with me. And he wiggled out of his robe and he left it behind and when Potiphar got home she said, that slave of yours came in to rape me. And he ran away. I screamed and he ran away without his coat. And so Potiphar threw him in jail. He went from the frying pan into the fire. Now he was a loved son and now he is, is a slave and now he's a prisoner. But God's providence was at work.
1: We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com.